PTJ podcasts are made possible by the American Physical Therapy Association. This podcast is sponsored by Eclipse. Eclipse has helped physical therapists streamline their practices since 1985. Eclipse is a comprehensive all-in-one system that handles your billing, scheduling, and clinical documentation. Find out more at www.ineedeclipse.com or call 1-800-966-1462. Taking a weight and height and a blood pressure collectively probably takes six minutes. So what per se is difficult about that? We can have lots of data and we can say quality will be improved by collecting these data, but until clinicians understand how to use the data, they will see it as a burden. The Affordable Care Act has definitely accelerated the process of tying quality to payment. Welcome to this PTJ discussion podcast, Quality Indicators in Physical Therapist Practice. The April 2012 issue of PTJ includes an observational study of a survey by Dr. Diane Jetty and Dr. Dion Jewell on the use of quality indicators in physical therapist practice. They found that only 6% to 36% of participants reported using various standardized measures on at least 90% of their patients. Both authors, along with Heather Smith, Program Director of Quality at APTA, discuss the implications of their findings. And now, the moderator for today's discussion, PTJ Editor-in-Chief, Dr. Rebecca Craik. Hello, I am delighted to be here to discuss the use of quality indicators in physical therapist practice and observational study. The authors are Dr. Diane Jetty, who is the Chair of the Department of Rehabilitation and Movement Sciences in the University of Vermont. Good morning. And the second author is Dr. Dion Jewell, who is CEO of Rehab Intel Network, located in Ruther Glen, Virginia. Good morning. The person that we asked to come and also discuss the implications of the paper is Heather Smith, who is a physical therapist and also has a degree in public health. She is the program director for quality at the American Physical Therapy Association. Hi, this is Heather Smith. I'm thrilled to be able to participate in the discussion today. So I would like to begin by asking Diane and Dion to summarize the study. Well, this is Diane. I guess I can start with that. Dion and I were on a work group through the APTA to examine some potential measures of quality that the APTA might be sponsoring. And through our conversations with that group, it really came about that we didn't understand where our profession was at the moment. And I started thinking, wow, we're having these arguments and discussions and we don't know the baseline. Where is practice right now? What are we doing in relationship to quality measures? And it seemed reasonable that the people who practice mostly in the outpatient would be most interested in many of these measures. Those would most likely be members of the private practice section and the orthopedic section. Those are the participants that we asked to engage in a survey that we did about their practice. Dion, do you have anything to add? Yeah, so I think from my perspective, my experience was listening to members who were being asked about their participation in quality initiatives. Many of them were expressing hesitation to participate, particularly in the federal initiative, the Physicians Quality Reporting Initiative. 
But we didn't really understand from a practice perspective what was holding them back. And so the two ideas really merged together, understanding the baseline in terms of what people are doing in practice related to quality, but also then trying to link that up with participation in these payment-related initiatives. And I'm going to say that what an incredible time for us to be having this discussion. As we're recording this podcast today, the Supreme Court is listening to whether or not the Patient Protection and Affordable Care Act should be declared unconstitutional. And here we are talking about one of the aspects of this very important act. Maybe before we go further, this is a really good opportunity for Heather to kind of give some background for those listeners who are not as familiar with this topic. Sure. So certainly it's the case with physician quality reporting system programs and also the inpatient quality reporting programs that neither of those two programs will disappear in the event that the Affordable Care Act is repealed. The shift of healthcare reimbursement from a pay-for-quantity to a pay-for-quality system has been evolving slowly over the last several years. The Affordable Care Act has definitely accelerated the process of tying quality to payment, but there's no doubt that quality measures will inform payment in every practice setting in the future. This is Diane. I think one of the other aims is to improve access and to improve access to the right provider. And we have been saying as physical therapists through our association that we are the right provider for direct access to care for musculoskeletal conditions. And if that's the case, if we are performing in the direct access environment, then we do need to have some of the baseline quality measures that allow us to assess patients' general health and to probably make some recommendations toward their general health and to screen them for conditions that might need physician referral. So this is a really nice background. Now tell us what your findings are. So we surveyed members of the orthopedic and private practice sections, as I said, and in the end, we had over 2,700 respondents. However, that only represented 17% of the members of those two sections. So whatever we say has a little bit of caveat because of that response rate. We asked participants about the percentage of patients in which they performed certain interventions or certain examinations. And then we looked at the interventions and examinations for which more than 90% of their patients received that intervention or that examination. So we used that 90% cutoff as a quality point. And this point's been used in looking at the physician quality improvement initiative also. So it seemed like a reasonable point to look at. What we found was that there were several areas where there were a majority of respondents performing the examinations or the interventions in less than 90% of their patients. And some of those were, for example, taking a blood pressure at least once advising people who indicated that they smoked to stop smoking, and measurement of BMI or body mass index and or waist circumference. Also, for people over 65, a fairly low proportion of our participants measured cardiovascular response to exercise and assessed fall risk with standardized measures. Some of the measures that the majority of participants did in more than 90% of their patients 
were not surprising. They were related to more what we would consider traditional physical therapy interventions, like assessing pain in people with low back pain or assessing pain in people with osteoarthritis. Yeah, so if I can add some information, there were some results that were clearly consistent with what I guess people would think of as traditional or bread and butter physical therapy, the things that you would expect physical therapists to do. But there were also some things on that list that I would consider traditional that weren't done consistently. The gait speed measure was one in particular that really struck me as a low performance level. Given how much we are focused on fall prevention and mobility, it was striking to notice that this particular indicator was not used very much. Now, I think the other thing that is important to understand is that Diane, I believe, has studied previously the use of standardized measures in practice generally, and we have not fared well in that regard either in terms of using standardized tools to quantify what we're observing in a consistent way. So in that sense, I guess maybe the skate speed indicator and some of the others is actually verification of those earlier findings. I agree with Dion. I also think that assessment of fall risk is certainly something that physical therapists do or should do on a regular basis, and yet we had a fairly low percentage of people who did that assessment in more than 90% of their patients. So there's only about 35 or 36% did that in more than 90% of their patients who were 65 years or older. And also, you would think assessing cardiovascular response to exercise was only done by physical therapists. I don't know other healthcare practitioners who routinely would think of doing this. So it's somewhat surprising that a lower percentage of our participants performed that assessment in more than 90% of their patients. As a matter of fact, it was only about 7%. Yeah, so one of our challenges is that because we didn't drill down further into the notion of what defines burden, we don't have a way to know per se what exactly is burdensome about these tasks. You know, taking a weight and height and a blood pressure collectively probably takes six minutes. So what per se is difficult about that? other than perhaps it's not their habit, but we don't have a way to know that. On the other hand, there are some things in here that perhaps are not so surprising. For instance, uh, giving advice about smoking cessation. I know there was a paper recently related to this, I think in the last month, yes, or two. But the notion that perhaps some of the burden is lack of knowledge or lack of understanding of what to do with the information or a lack of sense of the resources that may be available to folks once they get those data collected It's all speculation on our part, but I think at least having identified areas to investigate in more detail will help us better understand and perhaps develop initiatives to help our colleagues adopt these practices in a timely manner. You know, Heather can tell you the exact timeline when all of this is going to be right in our face and forcing us to step up. So I think we'll need to find ways to help our colleagues snap too a little bit. So Heather, do you want to add something right now? Sure. In the last year with my interactions with therapists, there definitely is a perception that the PQRS or physician quality reporting system is burdensome. And I'm not sure whether that's a lack of knowledge or a lack of resources or some other issues that contribute to the perception of burden. 
In my conversations, certainly many practice administrators and owners have expressed that initially participation in that program can be quite daunting. I certainly believe with increased education about the program, we're beginning to alter these perceptions. As Dion discussed, sometimes when payment shifts, we can drive practice in a good way. And with respect to the physician quality reporting system, there was a decision by CMS last year, and they finalized the use of the calendar year 2013 reporting data to inform the 2015 payment adjustment or penalty for all practitioners that are able to participate in this program. So essentially what that means for our members and all physical therapists and other eligible practitioners for this program, starting in January of 2013, they must participate in this program to avoid penalties in 2015 and subsequent years. And recognizing that this shift is going to happen, the APTA has redesigned the PQRS website. We've created a variety of new resources, including podcasts. We've also begun a discussion board specifically for the PQRS program. And certainly, we continue to solicit suggestions about other ways that we can reach out to members to help them to start to include these quality measures in their practice. So this is Becky speaking. Is it possible that the clinicians don't see the value of these particular quality measures? I'm thinking that for the most part, practitioners are seeing patients who have physician referral. We're not practicing as much in the direct access environment. And so it could be that most of our participants make an assumption, for example, that the physician is following the patient's blood pressure or the physician is having the conversation about quitting smoking or the physician has already discussed the patient's risk based on their body mass index. You know, this is Dion. I think another possibility may be that when patients come into our practices by referral or even by self-direction, that they present with their particular complaint and we focus in on that issue and we don't necessarily take the time or perhaps even have the time to focus on the broader health of the patient. Diane alluded to this early on in the discussion. As direct access practitioners and point of entry practitioners, we have an obligation to take on more than just the immediate need the patient presents with, the sprained ankle, the acute back pain, and so forth. And that means broadening our lens, our view, and looking specifically for things that put our patients at risk for future health problems. So I might not think to measure a BMI or a blood pressure in a 25-year-old with acute low back pain because I'm assuming that they're otherwise healthy. If I find out that they have three risk factors as I interview them, that should prompt me to take those measures. But in order to go down that road, I actually have to assume the mantle of responsibility for the broader health of the population or the person in front of me. And I'm not clear that as a profession, we fully understand that that's the implication of what it means to be a point of entry provider. And that comes with a broader expectation, which will cause us to rethink how we practice every day. I think the thing that I hope our colleagues remember most is that we are the movement specialists, which means that we tie these tests and measures and interventions 
to the patient's ability to move and the things that get in the way of that ability. No other profession does that. And so when you're talking about measuring blood pressure, when you're talking about fall risk, when you're talking about evaluating diabetic feet, it's all tied to how a person is going to move. The physician's office is not going to assess those same measures in that same way. And so the opportunity and really the obligation falls to us to connect those dots. So this is Becky, and I'm going to say something, and I would really like the three of you each to comment on it. From my perspective, we've come such a long way. So I was really excited measures were, in fact, being used, and that even though the use of quality indicators were poor, they weren't zero. So I need to say that we've come a long way because... From my perspective, this was not part of practice in the past. So I see this as really the beginning of something wonderful rather than a depressing outcome. What do you guys think about that? Well, I agree to a certain extent where you can see from the data that, for example, more than 87% of our participants reviewed physical health status in more than 90% of their patients. Particularly in outpatient care, more people have developed, I'll call it sort of a pre-screening sheet for their patients to complete. So they actually have information about other physical and medical conditions. And we also saw a fairly high percentage of participants determining medication use in more than 90% of their patients. And I think that's relatively new as well. And I certainly don't want to whitewash what the paper is reporting. I'm not meaning to do that. But I do want to come away from the paper with, okay, what do we do next? How do we accelerate training to get to the right point? While the research is incredibly important, we also have to be in the clinics educating and helping our clinicians so that we are using the right indicators. We see here with our data that For people with a primary diagnosis of back pain, that a majority of our respondents are advising against bed rest. So that data, at least, seem to be getting into practice. The guidelines for low back pain may be being implemented into practice, and we can just hope for some of the other guidelines getting into our practice in the future. Yeah, Mrs. Dion, you know, I don't think our colleagues think, oh, standardized measures are a bad idea. I would be willing to bet, because I've experienced this with the evidence-based practice phenomenon, that it's more a matter of, I know this is something I need to do. I know it's something I'm capable of doing. I just don't see how in my circumstances to make that work, given all the other competing demands on my time. And so I don't think the future is bleak by any stretch, but I think it really needs to be getting to people where they live, where they work, and helping them in their particular circumstances see how they can do this better. That's exactly what I wanted you to say because I think that's so important. So just this paper isn't going to do it. Just having APTA develop a website isn't going to do it. It's how do we demonstrate to the clinicians that they can incorporate this with all the other things that they're doing in the clinic. And I think, Becky, the other thing is the literature is pretty clear on the fact that clinicians if they incorporate something into their practice, they need to understand how it helps the patient in front of them. And a lot of our measures, we haven't been very good at showing people how they can be useful, for example, in terms of designing a plan of care that's actually feasible and will have the results that they want to have 
in the time that they have with the patient. So we can have lots of data and we can say quality will be improved by collecting these data, but until clinicians understand how to use the data, they will see it as a burden. Heather, we didn't let you speak. Heather, would you like to say something? Well, that's okay, because I thought that Dion and Diane summarized that beautifully. So I would just echo that I think that the key to this is for clinicians to really see the value of incorporating these measures into their practice in ways that will benefit both their clinical practice and their patients. Because I think this should not be viewed as a punishment. What we're trying to do is enhance the quality of life of our patients. And somehow, right now, it's seen as a huge burden. And so that's really the issue that we need to be able to address. Well, and this is Dion. I think the other thing to keep in mind is that we're not the only healthcare profession that perceives these things to be burdensome. Physicians, nurses, others, there are other data out there that indicate that everyone is struggling with how to do what they know is important to do, what they know is the right thing to do, but how to fit that into a contemporary healthcare environment that gobbles up their time and makes it difficult for them to know how to allocate resources so that they can practice at the level they wish to but still survive financially. So we're not alone. And I will say that the quality effort that's out there now actually has a very collaborative spirit to it. There is a lot of cross-communication that's underway in order to help us all do better with this. So I would then like to thank all of you for this, I think, remarkably insightful discussion. I hope that our listeners took something away that was as interesting as this conversation has been to me. Send us your comments or suggestions about this or other PTJ podcasts via email ptj at scienceaudio.net or voicemail 626-593-7825. This has been a production of Science Audio, online at www.scienceaudio.net. Thanks for listening.